Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 121 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Kai Loon episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that Kai Loon, the Chinese inventor of paper and the paper making process, died in the year. 121, much like paper is more or less dying now in the year 2015. And of course, with that little bit of interesting factoid knowledge, I, of course, am Matt and coming, uh, coming to us from the dirty head of the original Sony disco jogger would be Tim. Is that the name of the original Sony disco jogger? Tim? Tim, no, Tim no, Wong, no. maybe? Uh, no, the, the, uh, it was the Walkman. That was what they originally proposed the Walkman to be, was the Sony Disco Jogger. Because both disco and jogging were then all the rage in America. I would imagine if you were going to disco or, or really full-out dance with the Walkman on, uh, I, I think something might get hurt. You might, you might hurt something. Quite frankly, I'm surprised that, uh, is it Jim Fix? Phipps? Phipps? I can't remember which one it was. Uh, didn't, you know, model these things right along with John Travolta. Since, you know, as a disco jogger, things that would quickly die (laughs) (laughs) shortly after the release of the Sony Walkman. But, um, anyway... So how's your week been, sir? Good, good. I I saw two of the Beach Boys this past week at a at Brian Fest, which is a little benefit for some kind of charity that this band puts on every year, and they bring in all these other bands from all over the place to uh, come and perform uh, various songs of of uh, of whatever band that they choose. So this year it was Brian Fest, Brian Wilson from uh, the Beach Boys. Last year it was Dylan Fest. Year before that it was Tom Petty or Petty Fest. Yeah, it was Petty Fest. So yeah, so Al Darjeeling or Al Darjeeling, Al <laughs> Al Jardine was there, and uh, Blondie Chapman, who played with the uh, one of the, the original lineup back in the '60s and '70s, was there. It was great, you know, a lot of people. Ann Wilson from Heart was there. It was really neat. I had a good time. Right on. And this is not. An April Fool's joke, considering we are recording on April Fool's Oh, Day. that's right. No, it, it is not an April Fool's joke. I, okay. I have the signed, autographed Brian Wilson, Wilson, <laughs> Brian Wilson show poster sitting right next to me. So Awesome. Well, yeah. I actually saw a pretty cool thing right before we uh, got on to start recording and everything. Uh, BMW did a reverse April Fool's Day gag. Have you seen this? No, I have not. All right. So they posted in uh, an Australian or a New Zealand uh, newspaper. I cannot remember which one it was. Um, the first person, this was a newspaper ad. The first person to come into our dealership and ask for Tom can trade in their current vehicle for a brand new BMW. And this girl comes in and with her partner and 
she's like, hi, my name, I can't remember her name. And she's like, can I speak to Tom? And they're like, oh yeah, sure. Tom's just down over here. And so she's like, yeah, I saw this ad in the paper. And he's like, did, did you think that this was for real? Cause it's like an April Fool's ad. I mean, it says April Fool's joke, you know, ad on there. And she's like, well, yeah, I mean, I have a car to turn in. And he's like, well, it's a good thing that you came down because here's your brand new fucking BMW. And they literally give her a free BMW as she just trades in her old car. Really? Yes. Where was this at? It was, again, either New Zealand or uh, Australia. Hang on, I'm going to pull it up. My buddy Rob uh, put it up on Facebook here. So let me log into the good old Facebooks and everything. Well, aren't they a couple of nice Aussies? Yeah. Nice Yeah, April Fool's is an interesting time of the year because I used to be balls deep in April Fool's. Not a person's name being April and last name <laughs> Fool's. <laughs> nice. Oh, and real quick, yes, it was New Zealand and it was BMW. Oh, okay. Uh, they have yeah. the ad up on uh, YouTube if you want to go check it out. That might be the worst name for a lady. One of the worst names. I can, well, I can think of a lot worse, but April Fool's. Oh, honey, I cheated on you. Who did you cheat on me with? April Fool's! Oh, oh Matt. God, you... yes, that <laughs> really just happened. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame the remainder of the case of uh, Snowdrift Vanilla Porter that I've been drinking this evening on that. Oh, yes. Well, two-part question here. What ha- hmm. what were you grilling this time around? And two, did you play uh, did you play any jokes at all? You tell me that no, you grilled. No. Is that an April Fool's joke? Really, you've no, been eating like top. No, I was definitely not grilling the sausage in April Fools. I was not doing that. Um, no, it was uh, we did uh, some tomato basil sausages. And then uh, also fresh pork chops again. And then uh, the last of my sirloin flank steaks. Um, because I like to, when I do my grilling, I like to do my cuts of meat in order of amazingness. And so now that I have gotten through my uh, my, my less quality cuts, my lower quality cuts... Uh, and now I am uh, to my amazing ribeyes. So the next time I get to grill, it's going to be badass ribeyes. I, I like how you really said it. You know, the, you you cut it in the in a level or in the order of amazingness or something. You're basically mm-hmm. saying that what you make is amazing. The various parts of the steak is cooked to a, a, a different degree of amazingness. Every time. Every time. Without fail. Yeah. Huh. Look, I mean, you, it's much of a stereotype as it is. There is a certain degree of truth to fat people being pretty good with food, okay? And while I am definitely not the fattest motherfucker on the face of the planet, I am a pretty hefty motherfucker, all right? And I do know how to grill. I mean, I have been raised with a barbecue, and I've been, you know, my whole life, and with the grilling, and with the steaks, and all that. I was born on a barbecue. That must have hurt. And so, yeah, I mean, so I I really do uh, enjoy grilling whenever I get a chance to do so. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like when you get your dinner. 
right? And, and you're a kid, and it's like, oh, I gotta eat the peas. I don't want to eat the peas or, or broccoli or Brussels sprouts or pick your vegetable that you didn't like. And then you work your way to like the mashed potatoes uh, or the rice pilaf or whatever it was that you were eating. And then, and then finally, you get to the thing that you wanted—that meatloaf or that steak or that fried chicken or you know your grilled pork chop or whatever it was that you really liked on the plate. And you just go from the, the least favorite to the most favorite. Well, for me. Steak is amazing. Pork chops are amazing. And my pork chops, I get really good cuts of pork chops. So generally my pork chops are just really good pork chops. Sometimes I do bone in, but these were the really thick boneless cuts. Uh, they're about an inch and a half, two inches thick. Do you have like your own butcher? Like Sam, Sam the butcher? I do not. I should probably start looking into getting a butcher though. Um, but at any rate, so so I mean I so it's kind of like that, but on a grown-up scale. So now I get to uh, where I've gone through all of my lower-quality cuts of meat that are grilled to amazing perfection. But there's only so much you can do with a with a solid cut of a top sirloin flank steak. It's still top sirloin, which is good, but not as good as ribeye and. You know, maybe not as good as like prime rib or uh, porterhouse for those who like porterhouses. Uh, T-bone, which is a portion of the porterhouse itself. Um, you know, and you get right on into all these amazing cuts of meat. It's good stuff. <laughs> Wake up, audience. Wake up. Wake up. We're moving on. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> they might be very hungry. I'm right very now, hungry. Unless, of and course, they're a... vegetarian and or vegan. <laughs> Which, if they're in L.A., more than likely they are all those things. All at once. They are a vegan vegetarian. <laughs> Who eats me? Who eats me? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, before we move on, though, do you, any pranks or anything that you've No, tr- really and truly. Uh, mm-hmm. n- nothing. I-, I didn't have really an opportunity to do anything. About the only thing I did was kind of... Mess with my kid a little bit. I told her she was in trouble with her teacher when she wasn't. I mean, you know. <laughs> and did you send her off to school that way? And no, she... <laughs> no, no, no. I waited until she got home. I waited until she got home. Oh, and told her I emailed her. I thought you told her, her that like first thing in the morning. Good morning. Your no, teacher no, because she came home. She's got uh, she's got Easter break, so she's off Thursday and Friday this week. And so she thought she was going to go into her nice long Easter weekend being completely full of groundation. But I very quickly alleviated her fears. I'm looking forward to the day that I can line the toilet, my ch- my child's toilet, with saran wrap. So when they take down to take the morning duke, well, use your imagination on that one, folks. I'm not going to go into saucy detail about what happens when saran wrap is restricting the, the hole. Ah... <laughs> <sighs> That's that's just How's that steak wrong. tasting now? <laughs> Thankfully the steak has already been consumed. So I'm not having to worry about that. Ah, uh, but uh do we uh want to get to any kind of news or anything? Probably. Okay. Well then, here we go folks. It is the news. <laughs>
First up from me uh, comes from NewYorkDailyNews.com. Hugh, uh, this comes to his courtesy of Kirthana Ramasetti. Hugh Jackman hints on Instagram he will retire as Wolverine. Yes, contrary to Tim's article, either just last week or the week before, I guess Hugh Jackman is planning on dying sometime soon. Because it says Hugh Jackman's days playing Wolverine seem to be numbered. The uh, numbered. The actor has sparked rumors that he's leaving his iconic character behind once he's done filming Wolverine 3, which is set to be released March 2017. Quote, Wolverine, one last time. End quote. He captioned on an Instagram photo uh, which showed him wearing only a single pair of the famous Metal Claws. The Oscar nominee has portrayed the popular X-Men character for the past 15 years, starting with the hit 2000 film that kicked off the superhero franchise. Jackman has portrayed the character seven times, including in two Wolverine standalone films and a brief cameo in X-Men First Class. He was last seen on the big screen as Wolverine in 2014's X-Men Days of Future Past. What do you think, sir? Um, I mean... Is he? Is this is just? Is this just one of those things where it's Wolverine one last time because this is kind of where they're ending? They're kind of bringing all of the movies to a close now. I mean, it'll be the trilogy ender for the Wolverine standalone series. X Men Apocalypse is the trilogy ender of this latest butt fuck that is the you know X Men trilogy hey, that they're doing now. I like it. <laughs> well, I honestly I don't think, and I hope. Uh, he's not leaving because they're ending the character. Uh, I, I think it is time for him to move on because Wolverine doesn't age. And I'm not saying that Hugh Jackman looks bad, but I think uh, it's kind of like quitting while you're ahead sort of thing. And like what the article said, you know, it's uh, he's been doing this for the past 15 years. You know, by the next Wolverine movie comes out, that's going to be 17 years so, you know, I, I don't know. And, I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else, like seeing what somebody else can bring to the character. Because, honestly, there's only so much you can do with a character over the span of seven, eight movies or whatever, you know. Uh, especially with a character like Wolverine. You know, I think it might be fun and refreshing to about just, you know, to bring somebody new in. So, I, I'm cool with it. I just hope he goes out with a bang, you know. Hopefully it's a really good movie, not a crappy one. Indeed, indeed. All right, sir, what do you got for us? All righty, first up for me. It turns out uh, Redbox is still trying to be relevant. From Deadline.com, Warner Brothers renews Redbox distribution deal with a 28-day delay. Redbox customers once again will have to wait about a month to see Warner Brothers home video releases, Following a three-month period without a distribution deal, the kiosk company and studio said today that they've agreed to a two-year renewal of a previous arg- uh, <laughs> of a previous arrangement that enables Redbox to rent Warner Brothers DVDs and Blu-ray discs 28 days after they're released. Since previous pact expired at the end of 2014, Redbox has acquired Warner Brothers releases through third parties, which meant that it could rent the movies as soon as they were available. Redbox says that it often makes a bigger profit without a studio deal. 
For example, it does not have a distribution agreement with Disney. Galen Smith, CFO of Redbox, parent Outerwall, or yeah, Outerwall, told anal- uh, told analysts last month that the lack of an agreement with Warner Brothers will help drive profit margin. I want some of that profit margin. Will help drive profit margin percentage up. Still, Redbox usually prefers to have agreements because they put less of its cash at risk when a title is a dud. The new deal with Warner allows us to continue to add value to our customers and content creators. And the person that said that was Redbox president Mark Horak, who worked at Warner Brothers Home Entertainment until he took charge of the kiosk company early last year. Quote, Redbox remains committed to driving substantial industry revenue and providing customers with the affordable access to new release movies, end quote. Redbox had 40,680 kiosks in 36,140 locations at the end of 2014. Wow, yeah, I gotta say, I'm kind of surprised by that number. I mean, Matt, do you use Redbox at all still? I mean, I sure as hell don't. No, I think I can literally count on one hand the time I've used the, the amount of times I've used Redbox ever. Um, but I mean, there I, I see people whenever I pass by the Walgreens or the Walmart or um, the, you know various other stores, supermarkets, what have you. I, I see people out there all the time, Friday nights. Waiting in line, getting to the red box. So, well, and also I think it helps with us having this podcast because we try to see the movies that we want to see when they actually come out at the movie theater. So, true, true. But um, yeah, this this so, is awkward. Okay, just making sure we can move on. I didn't I didn't know if you would had anything else to wrap up with that story. All right, so before I go to my last story of the news, I do want to make sure to check the old email folder. It turns out that we actually have a new follower on Twitter. Someone, uh, you know, feel free if you want to give us an email to the show at slscast.com we have a new follower on twitter though following us at the slscast and it is um fifth c i believe is how they pronounce it on the show because they can't pronounce it fifth cast but it's fyfc podcasts and it's at fyfc podcasts uh they are on itunes and stitcher it says we chat about nfl funny stories crazy news ufc movies and more now i did take a listen to this uh, show, uh, I want to. I think Sunday, I believe I gave it a good old listen. And you know all those stereotypes that uh, Canada has for being friendly and nice, and you know all the A's and yeah, and come on down, and everything's gonna be okay. You know, you know all that like friendly vibe and everything that you get, right? I'm sure you're familiar with these uh, stereotypes, Tim. Not whenever I was doing the other podcast. A couple weeks ago, had a little backlash from Rebel Stoke uh, Rebel Stoke Jim, who didn't like me comparing North Dakota to <laughs> Canada. <laughs> well, 
Well, way to piss off people internationally. Okay, well, generally speaking, we, we, you know, that, that's always been like the thing that I have found. But I listen to this podcast and I don't want to go to Calgary anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, they were talking about crazy ass homeless people. Um, all of this, you know, generally just the, the complete regular insaneness that is found in virtually every major metropolitan area, they seem to have in spades in the greater Calgary area. Um, I didn't want to go there anymore, but it was an entertaining podcast. So, you know, if you feel like giving them a, giving them a listen, uh, please do so. And if you want, make sure to follow us at the SLS cast and closing out my news coming to us from huffingtonpost.com this is kind of a bit of a crossover of actual news versus news of the weird um courtesy of Ed Maza fears of ISIS in Tatooine as tourists warned away from Star Wars locations 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 in Tunisia Yes, you heard right, folks. Star Wars fans are being warned away from several locations in Tunisia linked to the movies due to reported jihadist activity. Tatooine, which inspired the name of Luke Skywalker's home planet of Tatooine, has become a way station for terrorists looking to enter Libya to join ISIS, CNN reported. CNN said two arms caches have been found in the area this month, including one that contained rocket-propelled grenade launchers and more than 20,000 rounds of ammunition. Although Tatooine wasn't used as a location in any of the Star Wars films, it's not far from uh, from some of the sites that served as the slave quarters in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, including the home of young Anakin Skywalker and his mother Shimi, according to StarWars.com. Star Wars fans often make pilgrimages to Tunisia to visit the filming locations scattered throughout the country. However, recent violence has led to warnings against travel through some regions. What do you think, Tim? Is this kind of weird? Or is this just another nod to the investment that George Lucas made in green screen? Politics-wise, it's pretty sad. I mean, I wasn't really planning on ever going there, but I am now. <laughs> Me neither. I just, it's kind of, I mean, it really is because it really is kind of sad because it's just one more facet of normal life, which is tourist economy, that is taken away from these people in this area who more often than not desperately need the additional income. So it is. It is kind of sad. Yeah, these are the Star Wars geeks. Like, that. that is their Paris, France. It is their Mecca. Yeah. As it were. That is their uh, overseas destination, for sure. That is right their on, Sandals right Resort. It's Tatooine. <laughs> yeah, they go from there to, uh, you know, Pinewood Studios. And then if they have time, they go visit Harry Potter. Yeah, and their girlfriends make them go to Downton Abbey Castle. That's right. Or mansion, That's right. manor, whatever it is. Indeed, indeed. All right, sir, bring us home on the news. All righty, last from me is from Ain't It Cool News from a few days ago. And the article is entitled, Adam West and Burt Ward to voice Batman and Robin in a 50th anniversary Batman animated feature. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. 
And it says this, Bird Ward and Adam West were doing the Mad Monster Party, which is a convention in Charlotte, North Carolina this weekend, when Bird Ward began to announce something, questioned the agents, but then Adam West gave the okay as the master of all things Batman. What we know is that there will be a 50th anniversary of the classic Batman show, and as a part of that celebration, there will be a feature-length animated film. In my world, Warners would make this as big a deal as their Lego movie and release this in 5,000 theaters nationwide. But I will also be happy as a clam if we get it as a Bruce Tim direct to video Warner Animation Project. But whatever the end product being produced, I'm just excited that we'll get a new Adam West and Burt Ward adventure. They should have been doing animated stuff for years, in my opinion. But I'm a crazy excited about the news. End all quotes. So Matt, what do you think? A new 60s style Batman movie coming out with the original Batman and Robin. Is this something that you want excited about? I mean, this guy, the writer of this article, is clearly excited. Holy internet Batman. Batman. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would give it a listen. No lie. I, I would definitely check it out. I think it'll be fun. I, I just think that with it being animated, and especially knowing the propensity that we have for the mayor on Family Guy of Adam West, I don't know how well it'll translate um, because people are going to want to laugh at it. And even despite its campiness, it was meant to be taken somewhat seriously. So I don't know. I think people might be confused, but it'll still be fun to listen to or watch. You can listen to it if you want. Indeed. That's it. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, so I guess that is going to conclude the news and bring us to Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim. Matt and Tim discuss the Garen Pirina Pernia article in The Atlantic called 1985, The Last Great Year in Film for Kids and young adults. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. So, as announcer guy just said, this comes to us from Atlantic.com, courtesy of Garen Pernia. 1985, the last great year in film for kids and young adults. From The Goonies to Back to the Future to The Breakfast Club, directors like Steven Spielberg and John Hughes made innovative, intelligent pictures that respected their viewership. Um... And ostensibly, this article breaks down both the demographics of the movies that were made in this year and the films themselves. Again, going back to um, going back to Goonies, going back to Breakfast Club, Back to the Future, and that discussed the way that kids lived life and didn't necessarily try and dumb down entertainment and dealt with kids and how they lived in a way that was realistic and yet still idealized um and and it kind of goes to say when like when we've discussed this stuff i know that the last time i mentioned that i had watched the back to the future trilogy 
I, of course, I get the girls, and we all sit down, the, the wife, and, the, and we sit down and we watch the, begin to watch the trilogy, and they're all PG, and I'm sitting there shocked at, you know, the dams and the bitches and all this kind of, the language and some of the subject matter. I was like, wow, PG was really parental guidance suggested. And, and I think it, it was that respect for the audience that really gave you such good movies because you could tell by trailers whether or not it was geared towards kids like the Goonies, geared towards adventure like the Goonies and like Back to the Future, geared more towards uh, young adults or a, um, teens and young adults and maybe even to some degree people in their late 20s who remember and and think fondly back on those teenage years and watch movies like The Breakfast Club and know what it's like to relate. When you see these movies that John Hughes made and you see the kinds of movies that Steven Spielberg was a part of, it doesn't just harken back to a time that doesn't exist anymore. Things that we've talked about before, like kids don't go out as much and they don't explore. Movies like Explorers can't, aren't as feasible and aren't as truly realistic today for kids of today as they were 30 years ago. We have way too much of helicopter parenting going on and, and, and too much of a nanny state for that right or wrong or indifferent for that to exist. But I really, I, it's almost like this entire article goes back to the heart of PG versus PG 13 and understanding that PG and remembering that PG meant parental guidance suggested was really about a time when, and again, all of these movies point to this for me. Point to a time when it was important and therefore parents, for the most part, did understand what they were viewing either when they took their kids or before they took their kids because they saw it first. And today we... And contrast that with today with this just ridiculous homogenization of PG-13 just so that they can you know, feed the almighty dollar. And I think it's really easy to see just exactly how nostalgic people get for movies like this. And kind of as a side note, um, because nobody is, nobody wants to do R, it seems that um, there's a new Deadpool movie coming and that one's going to be R. So at least maybe we're making strides in the right direction. But I, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? I mean, is this is this article really more about the respect that they had for the audiences or does this really harken back to the what is coming to to be a debate between PG versus PG-13 me neither um, basically, though, I fed into asking you, do you agree? Is this about respecting your audience or is this basically between or is this basically turning into the question of PG versus PG-13? Well, I mean, I, I think when it comes to that particular question that you asked me after I was listening 
so intently without any interruptions from Skype or internet connections. I think audiences are getting too mature. I think that those particular directors just moved on to their next thing, you know? Like, Spielberg, all of his movies kind of have... Well, maybe not, like, Schindler's List or... <laughs> or Saving Private Ryan, but a number of his movies, same, well, actually same with, with Robert Zemeckis, it has this, like, zest to them. So they will always be Robert Zemeckis movies, or they will always be Steven Spielberg movies. It's just the movies that they wanted to make, the stories that they wanted to tell, are different now. You know, they want to, they don't want to go back and tell the same stories over and over again. I mean, that's why you see Robert Zemeckis. He uh, produced um, a lot of a lot of movies and TV shows that had that same kind of feeling as his work in the 80s did. Uh, Spielberg produced Super 8, which J.J. Abrams made. I, I think, like, depending on the story... There's you have like a limited amount of story to tell with, uh, with 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 like the cast of the Goonies with the type of cast with the Goonies. I mean you don't want it to be you don't want it to be overkill about these stories about these little kids that get in these you know goofy adventures over the top adventures and whatnot. So I honestly think it's it's both the audience have changed uh, changed changed the audience have changed and the directors themselves have just moved on to do their next passion project. So I I don't know. It's weird. I I mean, yeah, I can see the rating having something to do with it, but I think it's more importantly, I think it's just the audience have changed now. You know, I mean, there's a big advancement in technology. The argue or what's interesting is that the article uh, goes on to talk about how after Certain movies came out in the 80s, people wanted to see more movies with crazy special effects. And with the uh, advent of computer technology and CGI special effect graphics, people expected to see more graphics. And once studios began making more money, more studios uh, began making these big budget, over-the-top CGI flicks. I mean... If you think about it, in the early 90s, we had cool movies like Independence Day. You know, they built a ton of models. I mean, the movie definitely had CGI, but it had tons of models in it, which made the movie, and it still makes the movie kind of fun to watch. But now, everything is CGI, and now you're kind of, you're, you're kind of, the nostalgia factor is really kicking in uh, within the various levels of, of different, of movies, I guess, or of, of what an audience member wants from a movie. So that's reinventing our people. They're going back and uh, bringing back like models and fun little adventure stories uh, featuring kids. They're trying. They're bringing that stuff back slowly. It's just not as in abundance as it was back in 1984. You know. Well, true, but I think that I, I guess kind of like where you were referring to the evolution of special effects is going from practical to a CGI based effects machine and now people are kind of sick of cgi and it's kind of forcing a more practical effects based approach i think that that's i i i think that while yes you are correct and even the article does allude to spielberg uh donner moving on zemeckis um moving forward with other things but I think that 
they're missing this, I don't want to say niche, because niche isn't the right word. And, and the article even says that in 2013, adults over the age of 25 outnumbered kids as moviegoers, but younger audiences are growing. Because it says in 2013, according to figures released by the Motion Picture Association of America, the number of frequent moviegoers aged between 2 and 11 rose 54% over 2012. So it sounds like all those kids, um, either young kids or uh, young adults who are now 50 or like me, who I was 7 and now I'm 37, um, we're having kids and we want to take them to the movies too. And with this... PG-13 anvil being hit over the head constantly. Everybody's being hit over the head with it. Um, I think they're missing out. I think that there is a place for a non-animated movie to be made. Um, I don't know. I mean, it just, it just seems like, just kind of like, again, like you alluded to with the practical effects where they're kind of slowly bringing it back. Maybe it's time to bring back a truly PG movie that can have some adult themes without having to just be automatically PG-13. So many people have a say-so, audience-wise, with, again, with technology, with the news, with entertainment news, with blogs, with news stories. Everybody has a comment to make about the next movie coming out, um, especially those this, the uber religious, you know, will take an issue with these the more like mature adult oriented PG movies. You know, they'll then they'll turn the tables around and say, well, why don't we make a P? Why why not a PG thirteen movie? And again, it's a double edged sword because when a studio looks at a PG thirteen movie, they want the movie to be a PG thirteen have or, or earn the PG thirteen rating for a reason. Because with these kind of movies, I mean, they don't intend on it to be PG, and then all of a sudden they get it back and it's PG-13. They're like, oh, we're going to put it out anyway. These are the type of movies that they plan out, and they're going to be, you know, they're going to say, these movies have to be PG. We have to make it so it's PG. It has to be cut so that it's PG. Or we have to make it so it's going to be PG-13, and it has to be cut so it's going to be a PG-13 movie, and not an R-rated movie. But... I, th I think with movies like this, these movies, like The Goonies, uh, like a lot of John Hughes movies, it led into the production of similar movies that kind of went a little bit further in various aspects. Not necessarily with the material or the story, but with effects. And with the budget, bu budget started getting bigger. And so whenever you saw John Hughes movies, his early work... They wanted more John Hughes high school teen movies. With The Goonies, they wanted more fun kid adventure movies. That's why then you ended up getting uh, Adventures in Babysitting some years later on. You know, so everything was evolving into the next cool thing. And that's kind of what Hollywood has all had always done. I mean, they kind of hit a slump there in the in the 90s or so. But even now, you see that with the Yaw books. You know, the young adult uh, novels that are being turned into movies. And unfortunately, now, the most popular big-budget films, they, they fail to really get to the heart of the story. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about movies like The Goonies or uh, Back to the Future 
which I love what, uh, what, it, what they talk about in Back to the Future, how they played with uh, incest a little bit in the movie, you know, like he was about to kill, you know, him and his mom, you know, and when you watch the movie, you're not appalled by it. It's lighthearted. It fits with the story. You're laughing along with them because not only is the movie well made, it's it's well written and the characters are fleshed out. And again, there's heart to the story, so you're not you're not taking offense to everything that is you know and, and you know to, to what's going on. Unlike now. If you have a comedy that's rated R, if you have a comedy that's PG, well, just comedies in general, they, I mean, they, they like to push the envelope and really talk about, I mean, more raunchy things without there being that, you know, that, that heart or that even wittiness, really. I mean, let's face it, a lot of the movies in the, in the eighties are much wittier than the movies that are, you know, that come out now. And I think it, that's what it comes down to is the wit in the heart and the genuine humor that lacks from today's films. I, I agree to a certain point, but I guess I would say we need kind of like a cross between Super 8 and I think the movie was called Earth to Echo. Oh, the one that came out last uh, year? Yeah. Yeah, it came out yeah, it came out last year about the kids who discover the alien and he can like, you know, break everything apart and put it all back together and everything and all that kind of stuff. Um but we need I don't know. I just really think that there is a way to have the best of both worlds. I think there is a way to have adult themes. I think there, but, but in a, in a venue or a package or a vehicle rather, not a venue, but a vehicle that would allow for, um, kids of today to be able to re relate and to a certain degree replicate. Um, but I don't know. I guess we just have the benefit of having grown up at a really good time in the history of the world. Yeah, and like what we touched on earlier is that some of the stuff is repeating itself. As in, like, nostalgia is a big part of our culture now. You know, bringing stuff back, that's why they're talking about making a sequel to The Goonies for some reason. Um, but one more quick thing and I'll shut up. So the movie The Iron Giant. I've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. I love sure. that movie because not only is it a beautifully, I mean, it's a beautifully made movie, but it's, it's not only because it has great uh, animation to it and great voice casting and it's well written. It is damn depressing. And you don't get a lot of movies that are like that. Yeah. You get that with up. And you kind of get got that with well, I guess Toy Story three is the closest you could have gotten to with uh, with with the Iron Giant. I mean, a lot of Disney movies, like with Big Hero six, they touch with losing somebody and some sadness. But Iron Giant was something of a marvel because it felt like you lost that big puppy dog, you know, that you grew up with, you know, you spent your entire childhood with, and then it just dies. You don't get a lot of movies like that anymore. And Iron Giant, I've been waiting for that movie to come out on Blu-ray for years now. And Warner Brothers will only release the Iron Giant as the movie itself, with no special features, no supplements whatsoever. And that is not only pissing me off, but it's pissing off a huge number of fans, as well as Brad Bird. Even Brad Bird cannot get a proper release of this movie to come out. So, 
I don't know if that says anything or not to how, uh, you know, to, to how, like, where, where the, where movies, where certain movies stand nowadays. I mean, you look at the Twilight movies, you look at the Insurgent series, and they have their Walmart limited edition release, their Best Buy limited edition releases. So, tier. Well, then I guess that will go ahead and conclude... Discussions with Matt and Tim. Over the course of the next two episodes, there will not be any bonus segment. So thank you for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. Uh, We're not going to have any uh, bonus segment for episodes 122 or 123 because uh, I'm going to be going out of town, not next week, but the week after, and we're having to record a whole bunch of stuff in one week, and we need time to watch movies, and Tim needs time to edit to give you a product that's worth listening to, supposedly. Anyway, it's going to bring us to, if you're ready for it, are you ready, sir? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. It is the movie. All right, so in anticipation of Fast and Furious 7, or as people who are calling apparently the young folks now are calling it FF7. Of course, I still think of that as Final Fantasy VII, but there and again, I'm an old Isn't it father. just Furious Seven? It is Furious Seven, but a lot of people are uh, calling it FF Seven for you know the Fast and Furious thing. I don't, it, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's hip, but apparently, it is strictly Furious Seven. Yeah. So, uh, for the next two episodes, we're going to be covering the Fast and Furious franchise. We've got Fast and Furious. Too Fast, Too Furious, and the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift this week. Next week, we're going to be doing Fast and Furious, um, the reboot, more or less. Well, not really a reboot, but it was kind of like a reigniting, I guess you could say. Um, uh, Fast Five, and then Fast and Furious Six, and are we going to try and do Furious Seven, yeah. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and just knock out the remaining four next week. So, first Can we do up, Too Fast and Too Furious first? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no. Uh, let's see here. So, we're going to start off in order. Fast and The Fast and the Furious. It's a racing action film. All of you, you guys know what this is. But this one was directed by Rob Cohen. Starred Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, and Jordana Brewster. And this... This film basically struck a chord in terms of racing. It was kind of like the uh, millennials version of A Streetcar Named Desire or, um, oh, oh, good Lord, James Dean. What was uh, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Is that it? Or did I have him back? Yeah, no, 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 you're right. No, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, so it's kind of like their version of that with uh, 100% sex thrown in because that's girls apparently like fast cars, big wallets, and the 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 genitalia that go with that, apparently. Um, 
it, th- it th- what makes this movie so good is the racing. And anybody who tries to tell you differently is lying to you. This movie is not really very good in terms of writing and is it's not terrible acting, but it really does suffer from poor writing. And the actors are there because it's action-oriented and it's about racing. But we have to revolve this around a plot of um, an undercover officer is tasked with getting in touch with and trying to infiltrate a gang who race on the side but support this racing lifestyle by ripping off... um, Trucks and whatever, hijacking trucks, getting all of the goods and fencing and all that kind of stuff. Um, Vin Diesel, of course, is the head of this gang. And Paul Walker is the officer who is put into this wonderful thing. Um, He doesn't really know a whole hell of a lot about racing, but it's clear that he's an enthusiast. And the movie then kind of has its ups and downs and traipses along until of course he falls in love with Vin Diesel's sister, which presents its own set of problems. Um, I liked this movie when it first came out. Uh, this movie was a, it, it was, it, it was kind of like the birth of Vin Diesel as an action star, but it was also because a lot of people don't realize that it was it was Rob Cohen that was really kind of the driving force behind the the, the vision for the movie. Now, Erickson Core did the cinematography, and the cinematography is pretty cool overall. But this is definitely down to Rob Cohen being at the helm of this and putting the right people in the right places for the right style of action at the time. And this is something that he was also able to parlay with Triple X, again, starring Vin Diesel. Now, I'm going to only touch on Too Fast, Too Furious briefly. The vast discrepancy in any kind of quality perceived or realized between these two movies is usually attributed to the lack of Vin Diesel. But what it was, was at the same time that Triple X was up for a sequel, so was Fast and Furious. But no, the studios didn't want to let Rob Cohen do it. And Vin Diesel said on both occasions, if Rob Cohen isn't going to do it, I'm not going to do it. And so um, Rob Co- they said, okay, well, then we'll do it without you. Now, as in the, in the case of... Um, Triple X, it went to fucking hell in a handbasket. We'll talk about Too Fast, Too Furious and how that turned out in a minute. Overall, this movie is really nothing to write home about. Uh, It has, in the last 14 years, um, it hasn't aged terribly, mainly because cars of this style and type and car racing and drag racing in this particular way hasn't changed all that much there's been clearly some technological advances but the sex that sells and the racing which is why you're there 
um, looks ostensibly just as good as it did back then. So um, I would give this one three and a half stars. Decent movie, liked it. Nothing special to write home about, but it was good. There you go. What do you got there for us, Tim? All right, so The Fast and the Furious. I went into this movie watching it for the second time. I remember renting it back when it came out in 2001. And I remember hating it until the last half of the movie where the story really kicks in. And believe it or not, back in 2001, I still did not like the whole MTV culture. And this movie is very MTV. It's more MTV than it is like a decent modern Michael Bay flick without all the crazy, without the many crazy explosions and just outright ridiculousness. Um, I say this movie is like MTV is because you can definitely tell who this movie is catered towards, uh, especially by the outrageous parties that includes good-looking men and babes. And you can tell when they try to keep the movie somewhat relatable, they put, uh, like, a nerdy guy, <laughs> like, one a-, a nerdy guy in the party scene. And that totally clashes. Because, again, there's no nerdy girl with them. It's, you know, the normal blonde-haired, big boob chick who's, you know, they're out partying in the house and stuff. Just a lot of really goofy, weird things like that. You know, it's kind of like, I guess this movie was triggered more towards men, maybe? Because it's very, tes- you know, filled with testosterone. And like what Matt said, there's sex, loud noises. And Paul Walker cannot say the word tuna, but Paul Walker uh, has the looks, but he cannot act. He doesn't have the acting chops. But Vin Diesel does a pretty damn good job. Vin Diesel is solid. This was his follow-up pretty much from uh, when he did Pitch Black, which Pitch Black was the movie that really kind of started kind of started his career a little bit and he had, he actually was in uh, Iron Giant in 99. So 2 years before this, he did Iron Giant. Um this movie has the uh, racing, gambling, the babes, and various scenarios that never happen in real life, like I was saying before, uh, like the crazy, sexy parties and the babes and five gay, uh, five gays, five babes for one guy. You know, I mean, literally, I mean, it's one dude talking to five chicks. It never happens. The one thing, one aspect of the movie that I thought was kind of interesting is that it is kind of an exploitation film, which the movie does exploit sexuality and what you can kind of call a counterculture and unfortunately the it's kind of watered down a little bit by the mtv filter you know in a way they're trying to be somewhat kind of politically correct which kind of takes away from the exploitation and all i would have liked this movie a whole lot more and i think the movie itself would have been better if it was a little bit more of an exploitation flick. However, if it was more of an exploitation flick, it wouldn't have that camp. That does make the movie more interesting to watch now. And the movie, I enjoyed it more now than I did then, 
because you don't have movies that are that that are made like this anymore. There's not a whole lot of CGI in it. Real cars that are racing, real cars flipping over, real car, cars doing all these stunts. You don't see a lot of that now. Even the Bond films have a lot of CGI in it. So in a way, for a movie that came out 14 years ago, it was actually still pretty refreshing to watch. And like what Matt said, a lot of it really didn't age. Overall, the movie aged pretty damn well. Um, let's see. It's a, you know, like I said, it's a good modern day Michael Bay flick. That's not Michael Bay. And yeah, I mean, it's it's entertaining. You know, if you, if you like these kind of movies, give it a shot. If you're a much older chap that's into classic Bond car chase scenes or Bullet or The Sting, not The Sting, but Bullet <laughs> or French Connection, this might not be your bag. Because again, it's very MTV oriented. This one, I give it 3.25. I did enjoy it for what it was. Right on, right on. Okay, well, um, yeah, so I guess that is going to bring us to Too Fast, Too Furious, the 2003 follow-up to The Fast and the Furious. This one is directed by John Singleton and only brings Paul Walker back. Um, now, whereas the first one was generally accepted as a pretty decent film, um, even by critics, this one was not well received by critics at all currently holds a 36 percent rotten rating based on 157 reviews however despite its critical lambasting uh it still went on to do 236 million dollars on a 76 million dollar budget um we are now introduced to ludicrous in this one as well as tyrese gibson um and if you watch it on DVD, they have the little prelude thing, which is kind of explaining the events of how uh, Paul Walker ended up in Miami by uh, between the end of The Fast and the Furious and the beginning of Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, so we're, we're now seeing... Uh, Paul Walker on the other side of the law, basically. However, he ends up getting caught by customs and uh, loops his buddy, played by Tyrese Gibson, into helping him infiltrate and working for customs to bring down yet another bad guy. Um, this That's pretty much the plot. There's not much really to it. And then from there on, it's just more racing and sex and girls and pretty cars and pretty asses on the pretty ladies um again like tim referenced you know five girls for every boy um yeah i i refused to watch this movie because like i said with the whole um uh rob cohen thing because I knew this movie was going to suck. Now, again, it made a lot of money because, you know, the MTV generation went and watched this movie in droves. I did not watch this movie until last year when Fast 6 came out, right? Did Fast 6 come out last year? No, or did it come out in 2013? I think it was 2013. So I guess 
I guess I watched it two years ago then. I guess I watched it back in 2013 because everybody was going on about how Fast 6 was actually really good. No, I'm like, okay, well. So my buddy um, convinced me to... My buddy Sam, uh, Sam, Sam was on the show. That the, the one time he was on the show the, the, in the drunken, drunken fueled episode, um, he he convinced me. He's like, dude, I have them all on DVD and Blu-ray. I will, you know, let you borrow them and you can sit down and watch them. I was like, okay, fine, I'll I'll go ahead and. So I sit down and watch Fast and the Furious, and then um, I had seen Tokyo Drift already. Because uh, a buddy of mine, we'll get to that one too, but a buddy of mine convinced me to watch that. Um, so I finally sit down and watch the movie. It's not bad. Um, it's definitely more of the same. And for not having Rob Cohen and not having Vin Diesel, I think they really did as best as they could. Um, I was frankly surprised with Tyrese Gibson, which is why I think his character grows as the franchise moves on in 4, 5, and 6, respectively. Um which was somewhat unexpected for me. But, but it's, again, nothing to write home about. Um, I was surprised that it was not as terrible as I thought it was going to be, which is probably why I'm giving it 3.25 that I'm giving it. But it really is more the same. The plot is just uh, a thin veneer to kind of link it to the first movie, and that's about it. Ooh, too fast, too furious. Um, <laughs> Paul Walker still can't act. <laughs> in fact, in this movie, there it's poor acting all around. Like what Matt said, uh, probably actually more so. I think I had my note in the wrong place by saying that it was five babes to one guy, because it's definitely more so in this movie. If you th- if I thought that the first movie was heavily uh, MTV influenced, I guess. This one is definitely more so. It plays in that Miami party vibe throughout the entire movie. And they basically took every aspect and story helmet that the people liked about the first movie and applied it here. Except, you know, they're, they're in Florida again. So I like that they're in Florida and Brian, which is Paul Walker's character, he gets hired by the police for, uh, for this job, but he gets to choose who his partner is. Well, because Vin Diesel isn't around, he chooses Roman Pierce, which is Tyrese Gibson, who is in Boston, or excuse me, who is in Barstow, California, and who is under house arrest, and who is also bald and black. <laughs> Not to mention Paul Walker's character hate, or um, excuse me, Tyrese Gibson's character hates Paul Walker's character. So. They had to create this really bizarre storyline to get this guy, to get these two guys together. They start off in fucking Miami, and they have to go all the way to Barstow, and then all the way back to Miami to carry out this, you know, this investigation or whatever. And again, Tyrese basically took over Ven's character, since he declined to do the movie. Again, this movie is very MTV. Um, they cast a whole bunch of people of ethnic backgrounds, but it still manages to be racist. How, you might ask? Well, I will tell you this. It's like if you watch uh, 
Speed Racer, you know? Speed Racer, there's like every uh, every car has like the different person from a you know from a different country, and their car is styled after what their ethnicity is. It's very much like that because you have the Asian girl who her car is all bubbly and uh, Asian oriented, and you can see how she's dressed, what people call her. Uh, same with the you know the 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 African American actors in the movie you look at the what they're wearing what the music is that they're listening to just all the above even with the cops you have the cool black cop you have the asshole arrogant cop which they all suck i mean i still think that one guy his best acting role is in dexter because i think that's the only voice he has is the one that he has in dexter and he just applies it to every other movie he's in um and that's all that I have about the movie, other than, other than to say that John, this is a sad moment for John Singleton. He's a good director. I don't know why he made this movie. But because all this stuff was bad, I mean, it's just, I mean, all this stuff, there is still some fun in the movie. Like, you can get high and thoroughly enjoy this movie because there's a lot to laugh at. Again, laugh at. This could be considered a movie that is bad, and that makes it entertaining for sure. However, I can't give this movie more than three stars, so I'm going to have to settle with two point... Oh, shit. I don't know. Um, oh, seven five. Two... That's not three. That, yeah, you know, I mean... That, that hits your criteria. Ah, oh, fuck. Uh, two, I'll say 2.5. All right, 2.5 then. Okay, so that's going to bring us to... 2006's The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this um, chronology of films, um, this is actually the sixth film in the chronology. Now, it is, of course, the third film in terms of direct release and true chronology of release. Um Fast and uh, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth films are actually set between Too Fast, Too Furious, and Tokyo Drift. Um, now, I did not want to see this movie, as I had said before, because I, for the same reason, I didn't want to see the second movie. I was like, okay, you're, you're telling me this terrible, terrible movie. I don't care that it made money. It was still a terrible movie. And now they've gone and made yet another movie. And my buddy Mike was like, I'm telling you you have to sit down and watch this movie he's like you just come over I'll, the beer is on me we'll do wings it'll be great and he does these amazing barbecue wings oh god anyway so i uh, i was like all right fine whatever fine so i go over to his place and he's got an amazing setup you know the whole big screen tv and all this good you know great surround sound all night so he pop, takes the dvd out pops it in and we sit down and I'll be goddamned if I did not enjoy this movie. I mean, I was, I was blown away. I completely enjoyed Lucas Black in this film. His southern charm, albeit completely unnecessary and ridiculously over the top, especially when he goes to Tokyo, where it's kind of like this running gag that they never take advantage of. Um, just... It, it worked for me, but maybe that's just because I was a fan of American Gothic when I was a kid, but that, yeah, that could be it as well. Um, you get to see um, 
Lil Bow Wow, who's now just Bow Wow. He's grown up. He's not Lil anymore. Um, he's in this, and basically he's helping this guy who knows how to race, but he races muscle cars in the States, the result of which um, lands him in Tokyo. Uh, he lives with his mom, and then he busts up a whole bunch of shit in a race and then lands with his dad in Tokyo. Um, one thing leads to another, and he finds himself hooked up with, like, this just big-time Chinese gang guy who just really tends to like him. Uh, and, and again, the it's uh, Han Solo, played by Sun Kang, and he kind of takes Sean under his wing, Sean played by Lucas Black, teaches him and then teaches him how to drift. This is, of course, after Lucas has completely destroyed his car, um, by attempting to drift. He doesn't understand the point of drifting. And I think what what really made this film work, despite its lower gross, was Justin Lin. He stepped in and said, look, there is a story to tell here, and there is a way to grow this franchise, bring characters back, tell a good story, but do it in a way that is not just MTV. Now, this was the beginning of that evolution. And so it suffers from that because it tries to change that pace, but at the same time, keep everything that you know and love. And they do that change of pace by putting it in Tokyo. So again, you're going to have the the asses hanging out for the girls and the five girls for every guy. Um and all of the car racing, but you also get to see some really cool stuff. I I, I did like the Hulk car. Um, that was still pretty cool custom stuff. Um, but at the same time, I liked how they... I, I liked where Justin Lin was trying to take this. He was trying to make this movie more than the sum of his parts, which is really a challenge when you think about a movie of this style really just being, you know, drifting cars around a parking garage. So uh, I applaud that effort. And of course, this is also the return of uh, Vin Diesel. He comes back as a cameo in this movie, which is, there's an interesting story behind that. He agreed to do, I can't remember, Riddick, he did, Chronicles of Riddick or something. There was something he was doing in regards, I believe, to Pitch Black, and he only agreed to do it if he could get the rights or maybe it was just the cameo. Maybe he just agreed to do the cameo here in Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift to get the rights to Fast and Furious. Um, and as we will go into next week, I, it, apparently it all came together. I really like this movie. Um, I think in terms of the action, it's way better. I think that the introduction of drifting um, really gives it an edge over the other two movies that you just... It really did say, well, what else can we do? Well, let's try this. Um, I liked that despite the fact that they didn't have any of the original characters, that they really made a go of breathing new life into this with the characters that they used. That being said, the acting is still not there. And despite my man crush on Lucas Black he's it's just it's just too much gomer pile in tokyo for me um 
despite me enjoying Sung Kang and his character, he was he was lacking the development that you get to see in four, five, and six in this movie. It's like you knew it was there, but he just kind of seems to be a guy that sits around and eats sunflower seeds or or Cheetos or whatever the fuck it was that he was eating uh, all the time. So there's there's definitely big flaws to the movie, but I enjoyed this one more than Fast and Furious, and I sure as hell enjoyed it more than Too Fast, Too Furious. But not enough to give it four stars. 3.75 for me. So bring us home, Tim. What do you got, sir? You're going to love this review. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift from 2006. Again, I haven't seen any of these ever until this past week. But these three movies feature a number of people that think they are and they think that they look cool and badass, but really they don't. And Tokyo Drift does the same thing, but this time it's a whole bunch of Asians and a hick. <laughs> and it just doesn't, it, it, it felt like it was just profiting more, trying to profit more on the, uh, the first part of the franchise. Well, we gotta, we gotta, we we have to make sure we incorporate these shots of these guys looking awesome and the villains looking villainous, just so we can establish the characters. And it's very baseline, more so than Too Fast and Furious. I mean, basically, the camp and what could be called or associated with fun with Too Fast and Furious, you really don't have it here. Instead, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're stuck with Gomer Pyle because he definitely sounds like Gomer Pyle at times. Um, plus, am I supposed to believe that all these high schoolers are involved in all of this? I mean, that's one thing that always bothers me in certain movies is when they depict high schoolers being involved in something to the caliber of, of, of crazy drift, street drift racing and going to all these big drag shows and all that stuff. When I was in high school, I had no idea any of this shit was going on because a lot of it wasn't going on in Houston, Texas. I mean, it happens in LA, yeah, but it's not as glamorized as it in, in as it is in these movies. And I'm all, I'm cool with stuff being glamorized and over the top and stuff, but only it, it just depends on how it's executed. And this movie didn't execute that, in in my opinion, the the, the best, the most proper way possible. Um, and it's the same story again, like all the other films, especially the love story. Hero wants the girl, but he can't have the girl because she's somehow connected to the arrogant asshole, which is the bad guy. You know, it's the same thing in all these movies. Um, and also, drifting is used way too often as a plot device, to where it almost seems as if the cars can't, like, there's they can't drive any other way other than drifting. You know, it's like, you watch those movies about the people and, and horses, you know, the, those who, like, train horses or they ride horses. It's the horse. You have to connect to the horse. You have to whisper to it. You have to look into the eyes. You have to let the horse feel you. And be you have to be one with the horse. You have to be one with that that's that spirit animal. With this movie, they're saying that same goofy ass shit, but it's relating to drifting. 
You know? Oh, it's drifting. Drifting is life. Drifting is an essence. Drifting is it, drifting is what makes me human. I mean, they're talking about drifting cars as a cowboy would be talking about his love for the West. And it just was a little too hammy in all the wrong places for me. Um, and that's pretty much my review of this movie. I didn't enjoy it as much. I, as the movie was going on, I was really checking the time, wanting it to be over. Uh, so I'm going to have to give this one 1.5 out of 5. Um, there are, there is some good stuff about it. Like it's shot kind of cool. Um, but you know, the car chases really aren't that great. I guess it's just all the visual style that really kind of keep, you know, I mean, if, if like kept me interested at the beginning for the first half, I guess. So 1.5 out of five for the fast and the furious Tokyo drift. All right. All right. Well, that's kind of disappointing, but okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see here. That's going to bring us to the end of the movies. Next week, we are going to do the rest of the franchise. So uh, Fast and Furious, Fast 5, Fast and Furious 6, and, of course, Furious 7, or FF7, or whatever the fuck you want to call it. It's the most recent one. And I guess that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on... All right. Well, the music you've been listening to for the most of the segments has been, of course, brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. Of course, the music for our discussion segment comes to us from MuseOpen.org. And I guess that leaves nothing else but to talk about us. We are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. This is Matt, and you can follow me on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can get on the information superhighway, hit your thumb ride, and see if you can get a hold of Tim on Twitter. And, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Benicio Del Toro, I get to say this. I'm not Jack Nicholson. I'm not Brando. But I do mumble. And this is Tim saying that we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.